Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is up, college lacrosse fans? You're watching, I believe this is the first time I've ever streamed the college lacrosse recaps show live. So welcome. We're going to talk about a bunch of games today, including the Michigan and Virginia contest that was held in Charlottesville. Hopkins and Georgetown was a pretty solid game, as we kind of expected. We'll talk about that. Loyola and Maryland went pretty much the way that I expected, although I am surprised at the at the and the spread by the end of that Maryland and Loyola contest. We'll talk about Army and UMass and their uh, nail-biter, Vermont and Boston U, and we'll have highlights for all of those games, and then we will dive into almost the full slate and touch on, you know, pretty much the bulk of the games, almost every game to some degree here. So before I get into it, as always, be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notifi- notification bell so you're notified when we put videos out on YouTube. If you are an audio listener or if you're watching this on Twitter because we're streaming this live right now to YouTube and Twitter, please just share the crap out of the video. And as always, you can go to laxfactor.com. You can get yourself swag. You can get yourself a beer mug. You can get yourself t-shirts. We have both you know, podcast-related t-shirts as you see here, and we also have a bunch of non-podcast-related t-shirts, Club Lacrosse All-Star with a Twitter bird getting all hammered. So uh, this is not for the faint of heart, and it is not for the kids, people. I will cuss, I will swear, and I will be generally dope throughout the entirety of this show. So let me shut up here. We're going to dive into this. I'm going to start with the Virginia and the Michigan game and the bulletin board material that Coach Conroy put out there that, you know, Conroy, uh, that really just fueled the fire for Virginia. Uh, One of his quotes was, we play in the best conference in the country. Conroy said, it's not the pretty boy conference. It's full of six foot four gorillas ready to rip your face off. Now, problem for Conry in this game was it looked more like Virginia had the six foot four gorillas. They were bigger, they were stronger, they were faster, and they were generally better than Michigan in all facets of the game. Michigan wasn't able to win a quarter in this one until the the fourth quarter. They outscored Virginia three to two over that stretch, but at that point, it didn't matter. So let us uh, dive into the highlights on this one. Joey Terenzi, he opens up the scoring after John Schroeder absolutely violated Ryan Cohen, taking his candy and all of his manhood with it before pushing the ball to Terenzi, who booked it up and buried it here. And we will see a very nice goal there past Hunter Taylor. Taylor didn't, 
he kind of struggled here against Virginia a little bit. We'll dive into that a little bit more. Schellenberger is going to make it to zip. He's going to dodge from all the way in that back corner up the right from X. Just runs past his man, turned his hips, buried it. It's not even really bad defense. Shelly is just really good at lacrosse, as it turns out, overall. Now, McCabe Millen had a hell of a day here for Virginia. He scored his first goal uh, of his career as a Cav, making it three zip. A really nice pick set at GLE. That's going to happen over and over. Uh, that was from Schutz. Millen gets a step and very much like Schellen, uh, very much like Schellenberger's goal earlier. He just gets to the five and five and turns his hip and lets muscle memory do the rest. Now Millen's going to make it four one here. Yet another dodge from X. Yet another perfectly set pick. Uh, I believe the, I don't even know who that pick was set. Easy goal though with a bit of English on the back end. This led to a bunch of chirping. Michigan ended up getting a late hit call and uh, and uh, Millen ends up getting a chirping call. So they both had to sit down for a little bit and then it really doesn't get any closer from here. Peyton Cormier, as we're going to see in this next highlight as it rolls, he's going to literally just back and bully his man down to within eight yards, and we'll see it here. And this is where I say, it looks like Virginia had the 6'4 gorillas ready to kick you in the face, and you'll see him just bully him down. And that is technically all that she wrote for Michigan. Michigan's going to, you know, they're going to try to come back and they're going to try to chip here and there. And they do make it 1911, which isn't totally um, uh, not respectable, but, you know, either way, still too little too late. Uh, keys to this game at the dot, Michigan. They were expected to handle uh, uh, their business at the faceoff dot here. You have Whitfelt, Wheatfelt, however you pronounce his name. He only goes 8 of 24 against the new look Virginia faceoff squad here which is crazy. Anthony Gobriel, he smoked everyone Michigan threw at him. Wheatfelt, supposed to be one of the best in D1. He goes for 33%. Gobriel was 15 to 23, 65%. And then Thomas Colucci comes in and wins six of eight for UVA, 75%. Now, I had heard someone in the Fanlax um, forum talking serious shit, saying how whoever thought that Gobriel was going to take the face-offs or the bulk of the face-offs for Virginia was an idiot. And that obviously Gable Braun, if anyone, and he even made the comment, like if anyone who knows about Virginia lacrosse, they all know Gable Braun's going to probably take the bulk of the faceoffs. I think Braun got one draw and I don't know where that person, I mean, Gable Braun has never had a very good faceoff win percentage. So uh, Gobriel, he's the guy who takes it. So that guy was right. Shame on you, sir, for chirping as if you knew something only to be proven completely and utterly wrong. And now you look stupid. Uh, being a little mean here. In cage, Hunter Taylor struggled. Stops just 11 of 30 shots that he faced. He was much better last year, generally. 19 goals against, just 37% in cage. Matthew Nunes looked excellent, making 13 stops with just 10 goals against. That's good for a 57% save percentage. Now, offensively, UVA, good all over the field. I called it and said that Peyton Cormier was going to score four or five goals. Now, the stupid Michigan stats don't let me... Um, uh, they don't let me go through here and sort them, so it's going to be hard to to show you here. But anyway, Cormier, he goes for four. I said he was going to go for four or five. He goes for five goals and a helper. McCabe Millen was a monster. Five goals in his debut as a Virginia Cavalier. Schellenberger had a terrible day overall. Two goals off 13 shots. It just didn't matter, though, because Millen and Cormier, they handled their business. UVA's depth of scoring and their depth at midfield showed out. Ryan Colsey, who should be playing for Syracuse, he scored a goal. 
uh, a nice goal here in, in, uh, at some point in the first half. Offensively for Michigan, goals were hard to come by. Michael Bain was quiet, two goals and a helper off eight shots. The Virginia defense was aggressive. They cleared the ball 25 and 26 attempts. Michigan turned the ball over 16 times, 13 of them were forced, and so on and so forth. It was just not a great outing overall for Michigan. Virginia's defense bullied Michigan. They bullied the supposed Big Ten bullies all day. Uh, they forced, uh, they had, uh, what did I say, 16 turnovers, 13 of them were forced. Uh, Michigan played physical, almost cheap, you could say. There was there was a little bit chippy at times for Michigan, uh, but Virginia was both physical and effective. Where Michigan did play tough, uh, they weren't effective. Virginia played tough, and they were effective, and they win this game by a margin. Bottom line, um, a lot of people are going to say this doesn't say really that much about Michigan. It's just going to show that Virginia is really, really good at lacrosse. I agree, but I am still not a fan of a coach talking shit three days before you take on a team that is obviously much better than you all the way through. That's either just him hoping to light a fire under his team or he's mistaken about his personnel and do- just doesn't see that, A, the Big Ten went 10-4 and four against the AC or no, the, the ACC went 10 and four against the big 10 a season ago. So I don't know what he's talking about. The big 10 being the big, big toughest conference in college across, but B, you know, you're about to play one of the best teams in the country. You need to have a good showing and you give them all the bulletin board material that they need to come out a little bit more hyped. I don't know if it really played into the score, but I I'd say could be, I'd say Michigan maybe could have kept within six, five, six goals if it wasn't for the bulletin board material, because to pretend that like that doesn't hype people up, to pretend like that didn't make Mich- uh, Virginia want to come out and play physical and kick Michigan in the mouth, you'd be naive to think that it didn't play in some way in the heads of the Virginia players. Michigan struggled mightily versus uh, Virginia's two-man game specifically. They didn't communicate picks well. And I, I saw a lot yesterday of those the goal line extended picks where players are dodging from X and up and running off those goal line extended picks. It wasn't just Virginia that, that played well with those uh, throughout the day. Maryland did. Uh, Syracuse has been using them a little bit more. Uh, so it seems like a lot of teams are really falling in love with these GLE picks, and I'm all for it because it frees guys up as they're dodging up from X. They get their hands free. They score goals, and everybody is happy. Next game we're going to talk about here is the Johns Hopkins and Georgetown game. I, I had a feeling this one could go a little bit deeper for Hopkins in terms of the spread. Uh, we didn't get that full game out of Hopkins like everyone was hoping, at least the Hopkins faith, faithful were hoping, but it didn't matter because Hopkins was still good enough in this one, so let's rip through it. Things are tied at four up. Garrett Degnan sniped one from deep on a feed from Angelus. It was his first of the game. Now, Jacob Angelus, he's going to make it 7-4 to four for Hop with 9.35 left in the third quarter. Nice feed, cross crease from Matt Collison, the sophomore, midi, and uh, that was an easy quick stick there. And then we fast forward a little bit, scores 10-7 Jays, and Degnan's going to bury Hopkins' final goal of the game. A little bit of a loose ball action here. Rebound, Degnan picks up his own rebound buries it on an empty net pretty much, and Hopkins ends up running on to win this game by a score of 11-9. to Now, defensively for Hopkins, a solid outing defensively, especially kind of to start the game. They gave up more shots to Georgetown across the second half compared to the first half, but they limited the Hoyas to just eight shots on cage over that second half as well, I think four in each quarter. Uh, so they had they gave up more shots, but they were a little bit more pesky, a little bit more on the Hoyas' hands. Georgetown was kind of getting a little bit desperate trying to play from behind. Now, oddly, the faceoff dot really kept Hopkins in on this one. If we kind of come in here and we look at what happened at the faceoff dot, 
uh, Logan Callahan goes 15 of 23, solid outing for him. That's good for 65%. He won 9 of 12 in the first half and then 6 of 13 in the second half. Hopkins, they struggled with penalties in the third quarter. Georgetown goes 2 of 3 over the course of those extra man opportunities as we see. Where are we? Right down here. So we see in that third quarter, Hopkins picks up three penalties. Georgetown chips in, puts up two goals here. They go 0 for 1 in the fourth quarter, but you know those penalties in that third quarter made this game a little bit closer than it needed to be. Hopkins offensively, Angelus and Degnan led the way with 14 points each. Degnan went for four goals. Angelus went for two goals, two assists. Russell Melendez goes for two assists. Brendan Grimes, two goals. Matt Collison, one and one. They filled out the scoring, so Hopkins ends up getting some depth and uh, out of, in their scoring, and they end up winning this game 11-9. In the end, big win for Hopkins. Georgetown got better goalie play out of Anderson Moore, so I thought that was important. He picks up 11 saves versus 11 goals against. He was only 31% against Loyola a week ago. I don't think this tells us really how good either of these teams are overall. Hopkins still didn't play a full game, and Georgetown is now 0-2, and get this for poor Georgetown. And I think this was kind of the tone for Georgetown a season ago as well. Georgetown's now 0-2, up next Penn, followed by Notre Dame, which are both going to be insanely tough games. And then Brown, they're absolutely not chumps by any means. So with a slate like that, there is a solid chance that the Hoyas could be 0-4 right now the way they're playing, heading into that fifth game against Brown. It does get a little bit easier from there because they're going to obviously have Michigan and Ohio State in that Big Ten schedule. Um, but they'll still have to play Richmond, Denver, Villanova on top of it. And the Hoyas, they're just going to have – oh, wait, no, I was talking about Hopkins. I totally just mixed two teams up there. Um, so, yes, they're going to end up for, – for Georgetown specifically, it does get easier. They, they do get into kind of a little bit of a, a, a chump schedule, but they'll still have Richmond, Denver, and Villanova on the slate after they have to play Notre Dame, Brown, and Penn. Uh, so I think legitimately, if you kind of go through the schedule, they're going to have a hard time picking up eight wins unless they can win one of two against Penn and Notre Dame and then beat Brown. If they can do that, then their quest to get to eight wins looks a lot easier. But if they drop both of these games to Penn and Notre Dame, it, the the whole schedule it just kind of flips everything on the head. Notre Dame is or um, uh, Georgetown's going to be playing from behind for the rest of the season here. I I do think Hopkins is going to clean things up though. The difference between Georgetown and Hopkins, Georgetown has a new look defense, new goalkeeper did play better in this game. Uh, Hopkins brings back pretty much their whole their whole team, their whole offense. So even though Hopkins has struggled a little bit to play consistent lacrosse across the board and across four quarters, I do think that they'll eventually clean this up and that they will get better as the season goes on. So we are going to stop with that one, and we are going to move on, and we're going to talk now about Loyola and Maryland. Zach Whittier got Maryland on the board first. A dodge up the left side had too much room and his hands free, and he made Loyola pay for that. And once again, you're going to see a lot of guys attacking from X with those GLE picks all day long here. Eric Maliver. They get Eric Maliver back. He makes it two zip terps. He got a step up the right side on Mustang Sally, who still has the best name in Division I college across. Caught Sally kind of getting a little bit too comfortable, turned on the Jets, got a step, and he stuffed it for Maryland. Uh, that makes it two zip at that point. I think I already said that. 
Owen Murphy scores under a minute later. Terps kept attacking from X over and over and over. Jack Brennan found Mercy, uh, Mercy. Murphy on the high crease, fully loaded, and Stout had no chance, uh, unfortunately, for him. That goal forced Loyola timeout at this point, so Maryland already had Loyola on their heels early on. George Stamos made it four zip, a step down from deep, and as everyone knows, he's John Stamos's nephew, born into a very handsome family. John Stamos says he's probably one of the handsomest dudes in our family, so that's a huge compliment coming from his uncle there. And then that's it for the highlights for that one. Uh, Loyola, they did manage to rattle off three unanswered goals to get back to within a goal at one point, but Maryland went on a six-goal run, took a 10-4 lead, and that was all she wrote. The Terps won 11-4 by the end of that game. Now, keys in this game, Maryland won almost every statistical category, so if we kind of come through here and we rip through the stats, 47 to 31 in shots, 27 to 16 in terms of shots on cage, 12 to 16 in saves, which would make you say, hey, Ted, Loyola won in the saves category. They did not because McNaney had a better save percentage overall. Maryland just gave up a lot less shots. Turnovers were even 16 up, but when you're scoring as many goals as Maryland did compared to Loyola, those 16 turnovers don't look all that bad, although I'm sure Tillman would want them to clean those up. Uh, clears, 18, it was even on the clears pretty much. Ground balls, 38 to 24 in favor of the Terps. Faceoffs, 14 to 4, which is what we'll talk about next here. And then uh, Maryland was just 0 for 1. Very clean. Uh, clean games kind of across the board. I didn't see any games that had an egregious number of penalties. And I saw a lot of games that just had one or two penalties throughout uh, over the weekend. So that was interesting to see. Um, like I said, Luke Weirman, he wins 13 of 17 at the faceoff dot. The Terps won 14 of 18 overall. So that's brutal for Loyola, especially over that six goal uh, Maryland stretch. Loyola just t- couldn't get their shit together. Maryland spread the scoring out. Eric Spanos led all scores with three points. He, uh, he had a goal and two helpers. Braden Erksa and Malaver each put up a goal in a dish. Daniel Maltz goes for two goals. No one else had more than a point, but the depth in scoring that Maryland got uh, was, pr- it was very impressive. Uh, they got a production from a slew of different guys. I think 14 guys had at least one point in the game, so that's a big deal for Maryland. Uh, now, this win, it looks good for Maryland. However, I would wager to guess that Tillman would tell him, would tell you he'd like to have seen them put up a few more goals considering the faceoff dominance. So I think that was a mix between, you know, not great shooting at times. I think that they, um, uh, what was I saying here? You'd like to see him put up a yeah, poor shooting at times, I think. But when you win that many faceoffs, you really would like to bury it. So the turnovers, the poor shooting, that probably contributed. I think that with that faceoff margin in a game like this, you'd like to win 14 to 4, 13 to 4, uh, something like that. But in the end, who gives a shit? They pick up the W. Uh, they're now sitting at 2 and 0. Uh, Loyola drops to 1 and 1. They beat Georgetown in the first week. Now they're 1 and 1. Uh, so we'll talk about what these guys have for matchups. Maryland obviously has Syracuse coming up. That's going to be the, one of the biggest games of next weekend here. Uh, but let's see. Yeah, and and he's they're going to want to clean those turnovers up against Syracuse because I think Weirman, you know, now that Syracuse has uh, this new faceoff uh, monster working for him, uh, that should be interesting to see how that matchup, matchup plays out between Maryland and Syracuse. Um, but turnovers are going to be big because Syracuse, in terms of offensive efficiency, you don't want to give them too many extra possessions, even against the defense like Maryland. So as long as Maryland can win 50-50 at the faceoff dot against Syracuse, and they could do better than that, and they limit the turnovers to 13-14, I think that that's going to be a hell of a game, and I'd even give Maryland a slight edge in that scenario. But I digress. We will ditch this game here. We're now going to talk about Army and UMass. 
Army jumps out to a 5-2 lead off a Jacob Morin laser dished by Burrick, a really easy assist. Morin got his hands free with enough time to give a bit of a twist of the stick before lacing it past Matt Note. And uh, that's 5-2 now in favor of Army. UMass is going to storm back. They're going to tie things up at fives after Army turned the ball over on a clear attempt. Brady Hoff brought the ball back into the box, hitch-stepped his man, and let one go into the upper right quadrant of Matt Chess's cage. And uh, now we're tied up at fives. After each team exchanged some goals, UMass goes on a four-goal tear capped by Kalen Lewis stepping himself down into a goal thanks to some time and room. And all of a sudden, UMass now has a 10-7 advantage. This game looks very different than it had earlier in the game. But alas, lacrosse. Game of runs, Army put together their own four-goal run with Iker Jackson scoring unassisted with 547 left in the fourth to put Army back on top, 11-10. to And then the dagger, I think what you just saw there was actually the dagger out of uh, Will Coletti um, because I think I screwed this up here. But uh, Will Coletti ends up scoring the dagger goal in this one. Uh, what what happened was uh, UMass is coming out to pressure, try to force a turnover with you know under a minute left. Coletti ends up getting a pass, bumbles it here, but ends up picking it back up. Has the goalie on his back as he buries the empty netter. Uh, UMass they'd score one more goal with 11 seconds left, but that was too little, too late. Coletti won that final faceoff, and then time expired. Uh, both teams keys in this game. Both teams put up 40 plus shots. Army 42, UMass. 40, but Army put up 10 more shots on cage. Army won that battle 29 to 19. That's a pretty big deal. That put Matt Note in a tough spot. He's forced to make 16 stops on the day. A very good game, but he was probably a little bit too tested. I think UMass needs to kind of shore that up a little bit, try to limit the amount of shots that your filthy opponents take on your, your very capable keeper. Army smoked UMass in the ground ball battle 37-19. That's mostly because Will Coletti smoked the drip king, Caleb Hammett, at the dot 21 to fucking eight. That ass whooping at the dot didn't transpire until the fourth quarter overall. By the end of the third, Coletti was 11 11 of 19, uh, but he went 10 of 12 over that insane fourth quarter, and Army used those extra possessions to come back from that 10-7 deficit. Coletti finished the game winning 21 of 29. Just an absolute stat line. Army gets three goals out of Morin, two goals and two assists out of Reek Burrick, and uh, Iker Jackson went two and one on the day. UMass, they're paced by Grant Breo, who scored a hat-trick off five shots, and Kellen Lewis, he went two and one. Matt Note, I want to just throw it out there, played a very solid game in net for UMass, 16 saves versus 13 goals against. Army goalie Matt Chess struggled at times, making only seven saves versus 12 goals against. The fourth quarter was particularly brutal for both keepers as we see the score. Over the fourth quarter, we have 11 goals scored between both of those teams. The most notable goal being the 13th goal for Army that causes them to win that game. That is a big win for Army. That's a huge day for Coletti at the dot because, like I said, he wins what... uh, 20, hold on, we're going to come in here and we're just going to look at it. Coletti ends up winning 21 of 29, and he has a goal and a helper to go with 13 ground balls. So that is a hell of a stat line for Coletti on the day. Next one we are going to talk about here is uh, Vermont and BU. And in this one, I kind of called it. I had I had chirped on Twitter, and I told uh, this guy on Twitter who was you know posting about game day, apparently his kid plays, and I said, hey, man, take it to the bank. BU is going to win by seven goals. Uh, I think I said seven goals or more. 
and we banked that one. I was absolutely correct. But let's roll some highlights for this bad boy. Both, uh, oops, I'm almost on the wrong side. Vince Dalto, absolute sicko on the day. He got his toes wet, scoring his first goal with 741 left in the first. Quick feed from Perfetto at X. Up to Dalto on the left wing. He quickly puts the ball in the breadbasket. Three zip Boston U at this point. And as you see, that results in a Vermont timeout. Dalto continued his crazy day with 13 11 left. Oh, wait, what I wanted to show you guys here. Look at this ref. Snatch that stick from that kid. He's like, give me that shit. I thought that was funny. Dalto continued his crazy day with 13 11 left in the second. Quick dodge down the left alley, kind of like a off, uh, off the wing. Had his hands free, flung it underhand, buries it past George Egan in cage for Vermont. That made it 6 3. After a 30 second technical at the dot, Dalto literally wasted no time, scores on the extra man just like three seconds into the extra man. That gives BU an 8 3 lead. And that is all she wrote overall as Vermont never threatened again from there. Dalto finished the game seven goals and two assists. I believe he had 20 shots on the day, so that dude got busy overall. Louis Perfetto wasn't far behind with a four-goal, four-assist day. George Egan, the Vermont keeper, I want to throw him out some props. He played much better in this game than he did in the Syracuse game, and honestly, I didn't think he played bad in the Syracuse game, as I think even though his, his stats didn't look great by the end of the game, I think he kept Vermont in it early. But he stops 18 of 36 shots faced, 50% between the pipes here. So Egan now has put two solid games together uh, between Syracuse and Boston U. So that's a bright spot, at least for Vermont, as they drop to 2-0. Will Barnes gets a start in cage for BU. He stops 10 shots, just eight goals against. He wins the goalie battle. His team wins the game by a large margin here. Trey Brown forced four turnovers for the Terriers defense. He also had four GBs to go with the takeaways. BU dominated shots 57-23, to dominated shots on cage 36-18. to So this was all BU for the entire game. Vermont turned the ball over 27 times on the day. 14 of those came in the second half. Uh, so that's that's a lot of turnovers to put up here in a game of this sort. Uh, now we are going to talk about a bunch of the games that didn't quite, you know, that, that all pretty much panned out the way that we thought. We'll talk about Duke High Point here. It, interesting enough, High Point does take a 2-1 lead. Uh, Nick Murphy and Tommy Meehan scored after Balsamo scored an unassisted goal for Duke to get things started. So it's like, holy crap, 2-1 to one High Point at the 10:50 mark. And, and I had a buddy who was watching the game. He's like, oh, man, is Duke going to get beat? And I said, no. They will not get beat. They are going to still roach high point, and I was right. Easy call here. As Duke goes on a four-goal run, they actually scored seven of the next eight goals in the game. They go on a seven, what is this, a seven-goal run right here. So Duke rolled. Easy win for them as we look at their stats. Brennan O'Neill gets to top things off this time. He goes for two goals, six helpers. Zawada, the Michigan transfer. Listen, Michigan, Conry could have talked a lot more shit if they still had Zawada. But, you know, you lose your second leading scorer from a year ago. I'd argue he was still maybe their best player even last year, despite being their second leading scorer. You, you can make the argument between him and Bame. Bame wins, I think, by just the, the using the logic that he scored more points overall. Uh, so Zawada's 3-3. Three and three. Dyson Williams is doing Dyson Williams shit. He goes 5-0. and oh. Charles Balsamo, 2-2. Two and two. Uh, Ben Johnston, 3-0. and oh. So they get a bunch of depth in their scoring, and they win this one easy. Cause turnovers. Kenny Brower gets two. Uh, Will Frizzoli gets two. Aiden McGuire gets two. So that's an interesting, interesting stat. But across the board, Duke just smoked him left and right. Jake Naso goes 17-31 with 13 ground balls at the dot. So Duke rolls high point as we expected. They're now 2-0 as well. Penn State, Villanova. I had said I thought Penn State would probably win this game, but Villanova is famous for upsetting solid teams early in the season. Penn State coming off the terrible loss to Colgate, which absolutely had to piss them off. 
they handle business. They're up 10 to 2 at the half. And, you know, even though things got evened up from there after Vill- Villanova settled in, didn't matter. Penn State improves to 1 and 1 on the season. And then if we rip through and see, hey, who did all the scoring for Penn State? Matt Trainer bounces back and puts up a six goal effort off nine shots. Shots. Great game for him. TJ Malone goes three and two. Kyle Lehman goes three and one. Jake Morin goes two and two. And then they get a bunch of scoring from everybody else all the way down the roster. Faceoff dot. Not great for him, but let's see. Jack Frassian, much better in cage. Frassian struggled mightily against Loyola or against Colgate. He goes for 14 saves against just 10 goals against. He wins the goalie battle by a mile. Anthony Wilson for Villanova goes six saves, 18 goals against. That is a rough day. Surprised to see him play the whole game with stats like that. That's not very good. Ohio State. Uh, both of these teams actually have stat pages that absolutely suck. They beat Cleveland State. Struggled a little bit more than I thought they would. I said that Cleveland State could be a little bit more pesky. I haven't. I don't know much about them outside. I've heard a bunch of people that I trust their opinion saying that they could be better than a lot of people expect this season. Thirteen to six. Utah struggled a little bit, a little bit against Utah, but I could see that. I did still think they'd win this game by eight to ten goals, and they they fit that range here. But I would I would assume. Myers is not pleased and that he would like to see he would have liked to see them win this game by a little bit more. Uh, the scoring is what gets me. They just don't have anyone stepping up saying, hey, I am going to be the alpha male on this team. As you can see, scoring is pretty spread out. That's not a bad thing. But when you're a team like Ohio State and you're playing in a conference like the Big Ten, where you just got a bunch of six four gorillas trying to punch you in the mouth every game, you're going to need a dude to 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 step up and be the man. And right now, that Ohio State hasn't figured out who that's going to be. Uh, in terms of Cage, Caleb Fiak looked absolutely incredible, seventy two percent save percentage in net. He goes with for thirteen saves against just five goals against. And then uh, Justin Dalem didn't do a bad job, 12, 12 saves, thirteen goals against for. Um, Cleveland State in a tough game here. Tommy Burke did not have a great outing against Loyola. Is expected to be a you know an absolute pimp this year for Ohio State at the dot. He proves that he is that. He goes fifteen to twenty for seventy five percent on the day for the Buckeyes. Another game that I was interested in here. We've got Lafayette against Delaware. Delaware wins it easy. They're up eight nothing at the half before uh, you know taking it fourteen six by the end here. If we dive into it, I'm sure that Mike Robinson. And company had monster days. Why I hate it when they don't make these sortable because then they just make my life way easier. JP Ward, two and three off nine shots. Not a great shooting day, but still not too bad. Mike Robinson went off for seven goals off 16 shots. So he had himself an absolute hell of a game. Uh, and then, you know, just fills out from there. A bunch of guys putting up two or three points here and there for Delaware. What do we do at the faceoff dot? Delaware smoked the faceoff dot. They go 18 of 24 thanks to OJ Morris. So that's pretty good. Pretty, pretty good for Delaware. And then the keepers, Delaware keeper, Kevin Ellington, 13 saves, just six goals against. But credit Joe Doherty uh, of Lafayette. He makes 18 stops against 14 goals against. So he had a hell of a day. This score would have been much worse, much worse than 14 to six if it wasn't for him standing on his head a little bit here in cage. We are next going to talk about Navy and Hofstra. This one went down about as we expected here. Hofstra had a couple of guys put up monster points in their first game. I forget who it was. It was against, what, either Sacred Heart or Holy Cross or somebody like that. Um, So they end up losing this game. Navy rolls in terms of Navy score. Let's look at Hofstra here. Griffin Turner, 1-2. and John Madsen, 3-0. and Colton Rudd was one of the guys that run roughshod last week. He's only 1-1 and in this game. So they get brought back down to earth a little bit here. Uh... 
Xavier, our line goes four and two for Navy off six shots. Will Schiffenhaus goes two and one. Jack Flaherty also two and one. Uh, Keegan Hauser, Jackson Peters each two and zero. Oh, so Navy gets some scoring out of their big cats. Uh, uh, Zach Hayashi, 16 of 23 at the faceoff dot. That's a pretty damn solid outing. And then Navy in cage, Dan Daly, 12 saves, just six goals against. Uh, once again, he wins the goalie battle. He wins the game. Sean Henderson for Hofstra struggled badly in this one. Another good game, uh, Rutgers and Stony Brook. I had called and said this one would be a little bit tighter than maybe some expect that just aren't familiar with the fact Stony Brook has been a pretty solid team here over the last couple of years. They're now playing in the CAA instead of what they used to play in the America East. So we've got, you know, Rutgers ends up taking a 9-4 to lead by the half. Stony Brook gets their shit together. They square things up, five up in the third quarter. They win the fourth quarter, but Rutgers had already pulled away. Game's over here. We look at Rutgers stats. Uh, Ross Scott goes three and three. Jack Amon goes four and oh. Tanner, that's a dope way to spell Tanner. T-A-N-Y-R. Tanner Crumminaker. That's a dope name. Tanner Crumminaker, three and one. Shane Knobloch, two and one. Dante Coolis, instead of scoring goals, decided to dish a couple. He goes with two assists, uh, missed all three of his shots. So Rutgers does win this game by a margin. 13 of 20. Cole Brams, the Utah transfer at the faceoff dot. Matt uh, at the faceoff dot. Matt Suter, eight of 12. So Rutgers dominates the faceoff dot generally, and they win this game. As we look at the goalkeepers, Jamison McLaughlin. Uh, or no, 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 no. Who got the start here? Oh, Tommy Wilk. 12 saves, 8 goals against for Stony Brook. So this game would have been a little bit more out of control if it wasn't for what Wilk did in cage. And Carden Stoller, 9 saves, 12 goals against for Rutgers. Not great, but it didn't matter. They still win the game. Denver, after beating Hopkins a weekend ago and ruining my parlay bet, uh, had like a 7-game parlay that the only one I got wrong was the Denver-Hopkins game. They roll Air Force. Uh, let's see here. Navy, I, like I, I'm just ripping through stats for the winners because I think that's cooler. Uh, Mick Kelly, three and two uh, for Denver. JJ Silstrop, who had a monster game a week ago, goes two and one for Denver here in this game, and and in the end, it's good enough. Uh, Alex Stathakis at the faceoff dot wins seventeen of twenty four again. I think you win seventeen to twenty four faceoffs. You'd like to win the game by more than eleven to nine. So those still things for uh, for Denver to work out here. They're not not gelling completely offensively. They had a, they struggled early in the Hopkins game before battling back and winning that one. Defensively, they're going to have question marks. I think through the whole year. I think that you can expect to see Denver get inconsistent goalie play as they have the first couple of years, and their defense isn't quite as veteran laden as they have been. Uh, Malcolm Kleban, though, fourteen saves, nine goals against in this one. So that's solid. Solid, solid outing for him. I think that, if anything, you'd indict the defense for giving up so many shots considering they won as many face-offs as they did, and you could also kind of blame the offense for maybe not scoring, as, you know, being as efficient as they could have been overall. Another one we got to talk about right in my backyard, Binghamton, you hosted Jacksonville, and this one goes 9-8. I actually thought Jacksonville would handle this. It was 5-4 at the half. By the end of the third, it's all tied up. Jacksonville ends up needing to score the eventual game winner with 2.06 left in the game. Nikki Brown scored a man-up goal from William Krupski. And uh, while Binghamton was able to get another one back right off the, the, the ensuing faceoff after that, it uh, didn't matter 
and Jacksonville holds on to win the game. Scorers for Jacksonville, Taylor, uh, Jack Taylor, 2-1, Ethan Lamont, 2-0, Daniel May, 1-1. So, I mean, you can see they filled it up and, you know, got scoring from a decent chunk of their roster. And then in net for Binghamton, Connor Winters, 12 saves, saves, 9 goals against. But the, the player of the game here, Ryan De La Roca, the uh, Jacksonville goalkeeper, 18 saves, 8 goals against in a one-goal game. That is absolutely monster. You can say, hey, Binghamton, one of the reasons they hung close, they win slightly win the battle at the faceoff dot ten to eighteen, so they get an extra possession out of that. You know, I don't know how the rest of it played out, but in the end, Jacksonville's got to be happy to pick up the win. Binghamton's got to be happy to play a a, a, sol- a traditionally solid team well at home, and that is all she wrote. All right, let's start hitting into questions here now because I think you guys are all probably wanting to see the questions. Uh, or, or actually here, I haven't even told you to ask me questions. So, uh, did they talk about UMass yet? I did talk about UMass Wendell. Uh, and I see Tango Sucka told you that, um, in the end, let's talk about some of the games that I didn't rip through already. Holy cross beats UMass Lowell. I think I picked that one correctly. Uh, Bryant did end up beating Providence by a small margin, 15, 12. I believe this might be one of the games I got wrong. I think I might've picked Bucknell to beat Marist, but Marist beats Bucknell 17-10. That's a, a wide margin on that one. Lehigh edges Fairfield by a goal. Monmouth beats up on LIU by four. Merrimack beats Sacred Heart by a goal. VMI beats Queens 14-10. to Richmond, I wanted to talk about that one, and I didn't. Richmond ends up beating Bobby Moe. I, th- I thought Richmond was going to beat Bobby Moe. I did not think that Richmond was going to beat Bobby Moe 23-7, to which is crazy. Aiden O'Neill goes 6-6. Six and six. Dalton Young, 5-3. and three. Monster games out of those guys. And what caused this? Not even face-off dominance. Not even crazy goalie play. It just must be that Robert Morris's defense is really bad, mixed with the fact that Richmond's offense is actually pretty damn good. But that's a that's a brutal game. That sort that score surprises me a little bit here. Uh, New Jersey Tech gets a win in overtime over Siena. St. John's loses to Quinnipiac, seventeen to eleven. North Carolina didn't talk about this one either. North Carolina, I was surprised at the score. I thought North Carolina would beat Mercer up a little bit more than they did here. They end up going just thirteen to five on Mercer. I think they struggled early. Logan McGovern three and four. Uh, Dewey Egan two and zero. Oh. Owen Duffy. Huge recruit, um, you know, I think one of the the number one recruit from like 2022, 2023, whatever, one or two. He only goes 0 for 1 in his debut here. So I was surprised to see that score. I, I would say that I wouldn't be surprised to see North Carolina be the bottom of the ACC this year. I think it's probably going to be between Syracuse and Carolina, unless Syracuse can pull out a win against one of the big three. Um, but this this looks this bodes well for Syracuse. It doesn't bode great for Carolina. Uh, but one, once again, it is their first game, and it was Mercer's third. So you could assume that that maybe played into it a little bit as well. And I believe they played this on the road also. I don't know how much that factors. Towson. After playing kind of tough against Hopkins, Towson beats Mount St. Mary's 15-5, to so they absolutely destroyed Mount St. Mary's. And then what we've got going here today, 12 o'clock game, St. Bonaventure against Bellarmine playing their second game of the weekend. And now I think the big game today for me, and I'll actually watch this one a little bit, is the Hobart and Colgate game. I'm, I'm curious to see where Hobart stands this season, and I think playing against Colgate now that Colgate's played Syracuse semi-tough and they beat Penn State, we know that they're going to be a decent team. So this should tell us what we need to know about these two uh, by the time this game is over here. 
Um, he also UVA going to Richmond. They always have trouble. All right, so let's dive into the calendar then here because we got some people, Wendell and company, are talking about what games are coming up, what games will I preview come next week. We, I, I'm not going to go deep into the weekend games, but we'll talk about some of the games that are coming up uh, during the week here that are approaching. Uh, nothing huge here. Ohio State, Bellarmine, Michigan, Canisius. That should be an easy win for Michigan. Uh, so nothing great Tuesday. Kind of a boring slate, but we do have two big team, uh, Big Ten teams in action here. I wonder if they're going to have you know play like six four gorillas kicking the shit out of everybody. Uh, Notre Dame gets their first action Wednesday this week against Cleveland State. So I, I fully expect that Notre Dame is going to absolutely trounce Cleveland State. Although Notre Dame doesn't usually come out ripping because they usually start later than everybody else, and they're playing teams initially that have a couple games under their belt. So I'm, when I say I think Cleveland State could keep this closer than expected, I'm talking seven to eight goals is closer than expected, but absolutely Notre Dame could roll them by 10-plus. And then we dive into Friday games, which I will preview. Boston, you and Bryant should be a good one. Uh, high point VMI, high point's going to roll them. Uh, and then Saturday's games next week, let's see what the big games are going to be that we have to talk about. I like to kind of see how St. Joseph's could hang with Duke here at Duke. That should be interesting. Carolina gets another easy one here, another te- you know tune-up game against Fairfield. Uh, Princeton's going to take on Monmouth, so we start to see the Ivy League teams mix in here a little bit. Rutgers and Army is going to be a monster game. Penn and Georgetown is going to be huge for Georgetown. Always big for Penn because the Ivy gauntlet is brutal on top of it. So the Ivy League teams really, a bunch of their strength over the last couple of years has been what they've done against good opponents uh, outside of their conference schedule. Michigan gets Hobart, so let's see how Hobart and Colgate plays out today, but Michigan's going to play Hobart on Saturday in Michigan. Hopkins-Loyola, Hopkins hosting Loyola specifically, that should be a great game next weekend. Denver at Utah should be entertaining. Cornell gets their first action against Lehigh. Game of the weekend to me, anyway, and I presume this is probably the game of the weekend to many, is going to be Syracuse hosting Maryland up at the Dome. Penn State has another test on the road against Stony Brook. Don't front on that game. And then Virginia is going to travel and play Richmond on the road. And uh, just like um, Wendell said, Richmond can give teams trouble. Uh, They've given both Maryland and Virginia trouble in the past, so that should be a good one to watch as well. Uh, From Ryan Vermeulen, can you talk a little bit about why the line for Colgate is only a goal and a half? Thought it would be more, or is Hobart bringing a lot of people back? Uh, I think it one. if a team hasn't played yet, I don't think Vegas really knows what to set the line at. I do feel like the lines across week zero and week one were a lot tighter than they were last season. I think last season of the season before was the first really mass gambling where you know the first season of gambling for lacrosse, not, not all the states were open for it. But once it started opening to like New York, New Jersey, and all these other these northeastern states, I feel like uh, they started to put a little bit. They started to get the lines a little bit more dialed in. And now I think that with the line like this, we don't know yet if Colgate is really that good. Syracuse beats them eighteen to ten. I think that goal and a half line is just saying, hey, these are rivalry teams, upstate New York. Weekday games tend to be weird games, and Hobart is a decent team, and they do bring some guys back. I, I think Hobart may not be quite as strong as they've been in like the four four years prior. And maybe it was even before that where they were really tough offensively with a solid goalkeeper. Um, their faceoff guy, he's not terrible either. So I, I think that goal and a half is is a solid spread. I probably would almost take Colgate to cover. Um, but you can't front on Hobart, and we have no idea what Hobart's going to do. But you can't you can't ignore the fact that this will be Colgate's. What will it be? Is this going to be Colgate's? Um, 
just their second game. Yeah, this will be Colgate's third game to Hobart's first game. So that's, I think, another area where with you, I might be a little bit surprised that it's not like a two-goal um, spread or a two-and-a-half-goal spread. But these teams traditionally play each other really tough. And actually, we can even go back. Let's go back and look here. Uh, Colgate and Hobart, 10-8 to loss last year for Colgate. Hobart beat them a year ago by two. Uh, before that, uh, did they even play Hobart? They didn't even play Hobart in 2022, which I find odd. 2021, didn't play Hobart again. 2020, because a lot of this is going to come down to historical scores as well, I presume. COVID year, played Hobart. They lost 21 to 13. So I think what we're actually seeing here is Hobart's won the last handful. Lost 12-6, Colgate did to Hobart. So I bet you that's behind it. You know, Colgate looked good. They beat Penn State. They play Syracuse respectfully. I think had they played Syracuse to a closer margin, they might be a two and a half, three, even a three and a half goal favorite. But I think the fact that Cuse beat them handily and the fact that Hobart has beat them, what, the last four or five times they've played, that probably plays into that, that margin a little bit here. Who do I have for the Super Bowl? Tango Sucker is asking me who I have for the Super Bowl. Honestly, I'm a Giants fan, and I'm a weird sports fan because I'm a sports fan, and I love the teams. I love to watch the teams I love to watch. Lacrosse is the only sport that I watch everything, uh, regardless of who's playing. In football, if the Giants are, aren't playing, I generally don't watch the games unless it has serious implications for the Giants' playoff hopes, which I haven't had a whole lot of hope as a Giants fan over the last decade. Um, so I don't really care in the end. I know everyone's taking San Fran and it's like we're, we're seeing that whole KC is being disrespected bullshit again. I think KC should be the favorite. I think KC is probably going to win the game. I think it, I think it should be close, should be a hell of a game. But, you know, this will be the first year my daughter actually cares about it. She half cared about the Super Bowl a season ago because the commercials. I had hyped her up on, listen, these commercials are awesome. And she watched a little bit of it and, and did enjoy the commercials. This year, she has developed an absolute crackhead-like addiction to Taylor Swift. So she still doesn't understand sports concepts all that great. She's 12 isn't into sports. So she thinks every football game that is on, she now asked me, is Taylor Swift there? Is Taylor Swift there? Um, so I don't know if Taylor Swift is going to be in attendance tonight. Don't really care. I don't dislike Taylor Swift. I, you know, my, my daughter could love, you know, Cardi B. That would be a lot worse, you know, or, or, or Lizzo or some shit like that. And for anyone who might come out and chirp me about saying, why would you chirp and not want your daughter to like Cardi B's music or Lizzo's music? And it's because I want my, I'd much rather my daughter listen to music, you know, that's kind of more fit for a teenager than music that is more fit for, you know, only fans, chicks and porn stars and shit like that. So, you know, I mean, it's not a slight against them other than, you know, I don't want my kid listening to that shit. And uh, Taylor Swift music, yeah, you got the breakup songs and all that crap, but generally she's okay for a 12-year-old to listen to. And so it could be worse is the moral of my story here. It's two red-colored teams. I'm already confused. Uh, Tim Lamity. Tim Lamity asks me, am I a Swifty? No, but I don't hate her. And because my daughter plays her music nonstop around the house now, I do find myself singing singing and, and humming to a couple of the bangers. She definitely has some solid songs that are floating around here. Like I said, I'd much rather she was into Taylor Swift than other people that she could get into here. Um, so... And I'm, I don't, I'm not going to go deeper into that part. It's just that I, I, and those two names that I mentioned, I was literally having a conversation with a couple of my buddies via chat, and that came up. So uh, best attackman from WP. Best attackman from Whitney Point. All right, Chris Hubbard. 
Uh, he's a Whitney Point dude. I actually think I may have coached Chris at one point when uh, when they were playing youth club and crap like that. He may have been a little bit too old. Can't remember. So when he's what he's asking, best attackman from WP Whitney Point, where I went to high school, where he went to high school. That is a tough one. I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to name a couple of people here, you know, and, and, and Hubbard's probably expecting me to say myself, which is absolutely not the case. I am not even close to the best attackman to come out of WP. I just happened to come out of WP at a point where my team, my senior year was the first Whitney point team to ever have a winning record. We were the first Whitney point team to ever make it to the sectional finals where we got trounced by Corning, uh, 21 to seven. I think I was two and one in that game. Um, so yeah, you know, it's not, it, it's not great overall for me to have to try to figure this out, but I'm going to do my best here and hopefully I don't offend anyone. I think after my class came through and everything like that, no question, the best attackman at Whitney Point uh, became Heath Tracy Bronson. Heath Tracy Bronson played as a sophomore when I was a senior. Um, so we had a pretty good attack group. Heath was not great as a sophomore. By Heath's senior year, he was an All-American uh, at Whitney Point, put up a metric shit ton of points. He played alongside Craig Brown. I believe he played alongside Craig Brown that year. And, and one of those years, Craig Brown was the leading points getter, I think, in all of Section 4 lacrosse here. Um, so, okay. So Heath Tracy Bronson definitely was better than I was, uh, especially by his senior year. Um, uh, Nick Ballard, you got to throw out there. Nick Ballard put 50 goals up three seasons in a row. I believe Nick Ballard, you could even make an argument, was one of the reasons Heath Tracy Bronson was a senior come Heath Tracy Bronson senior year because they had to pay so much attention to Nick Ballard, who was just an absolute goal-scoring machine. Um, we go past those guys. I throw out my cousin, Ryan Short, uh, who played around around the same time Nick Marabito uh, went to Navy, played at Shenango Forks. And I was uh, coaching at Shenango Forks at the time that my cousin Ryan Short was playing. He, he put up, I think, 50 goals a season or two uh, in a row. And then, you know, I, I got to be forgetting people here. When I coached at Whitney Point, I don't I wouldn't say we had any attackmen that were better than you know, that were better than those guys, but we had a really sick attack group with Wes Alexander who ended up playing for me at broom. Uh, we had this Stearns kid who was just an absolute goal Hawk had like an odd stick way to carry a stick, but you put him around the goal anywhere, whether the ball was on the deck around the cage, dude would score mad goals. So I think those are the best attackmen. I think that you could make the argument that Nick Ballard, I'd say was probably my favorite out of all of them, just because in every aspect of his game, he was tough as nails. He'd hit people. He'd ride like an animal. He had no quit at him, had an absolute crank of a shot. Uh, just, just a really good athlete. And the Ballard clan, his, his cousin, Tony Ballard, who I ended up coaching at Whitney Point for two seasons, and we won two sectional championships with Tony. Uh, Tony was an All-American his senior year. Tony was probably the best lacrosse player that Whitney Point has ever seen. Tony, he started probably three years, if not four, at the varsity level, put up just an absolute shit ton of points for us multiple seasons in a row. Uh, his senior year, we played number 17 in the nation, Penn Yan, at Penn Yan, we, we, we only lose six to four on the road, like a, you know, for a high school team to make a two hour bus trip up to Penn Yan. And I think it took like two and a half hours because we had a shitty bus for, for us to hang that tight. That was completely a testament to, to that team because that was Wes Alexander and Stearns on attack. That was Chris Hand, uh, Matt Hand, Tony Ballard running around for us as well defensively we had a kid Chris Lethbridge um, we had a Moss we had Velakovic and Cage I mean that was that that those teams those two teams were probably the best teams that Whitney Points ever had uh, both of them won the sectionals and we ended up losing in the states to Lafayette potentially both years I think I can't quite remember here 
Uh, let's see. That's it. Guys, I've been rambling here now for like 48 minutes, so we're going to kill this stream. Uh, maybe I should hit Twitter quick to try and see if we had any questions there, but I do not think that we did. Actually, I don't know why I did that. I could check Twitter here. Nope, Twitters are only read-only. So, yeah, that's it. I have no idea how this went. I'm going to have to watch this back. I'm not sure I like uh, flying by the seat of my pants and live streaming this shit. I have zero idea how many concurrent viewers we had at any given time. I'll know all that later. So I'm not sure if I'm going to do this every week, but I did want to try to do this here once at least um, this season and, and roll live by the seat of my pants. So that's it. Be sure to come back Thursday for the uh, weekend the weekend preview show. And then I'll probably put some videos out here, probably do like a couple of film review videos going over. Uh, we're going to look into Millen and uh, probably draw on the screen for a couple of his goals. And we'll, I'll probably start putting a video out Tuesdays as well, moving forward, uh, where I do just a little bit of like a five minute film review. So if you are on the web or if you're an audio listener, be sure to hit somewhere where you could actually watch some of the film reviews uh, video wise. So that's it. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. You want to support the channel, you can go to laxfactor.com, get yourself a beer mug, get yourself t-shirts or whatever. But all I really ask, share the show, let people know what I'm doing here so we can get some more eyeballs on this whole thing. Uh, and that's really the best thing you could do. So once again, thanks for watching. Thank you for listening. And Hoost is out. The Lax Factor Podcast.